Well, this morning we finished a, a two-part sermon series that we've been in on transitions. In anticipation of our transition as a church family, installing Pastor Hannibal as our, our next senior pastor next week at our West Chicago campus, as we even continue to experience a, a constantly changing situation in this pandemic and in our country and all over the world, in all of these changes, we wanted to take some time to look at two particular transitions in Scripture to help, help us navigate these changes in a world that just doesn't seem to stop changing. We all experience transitions in life. Positive transitions, like, like starting a new job or, or getting married or going to a new school or moving to a new neighborhood. Negative transitions as well, like losing a loved one or getting a scary medical diagnosis and trying to figure out what that means or, or losing a job or experiencing the aftermath of a broken relationship or, or having to move to a new neighborhood. We're all experiencing transitions in life, but if we're honest, we don't all enjoy them. I mean, by their very nature, transitions can be uh, uncertain, disorienting, destabilizing, confusing, because they move us from a situation that we, we think we understand and we've got to have our hands around to a brand new situation that we don't understand. New experiences, new circumstances, and the, the disorienting nature of transitions often leaves us at best turned around and at worst heading in the wrong direction away from God in frustration rather than closer to God in trust. We all experience transitions, but we don't always know what it's like to navigate those transitions faithfully. What does it mean to be faithful and wise in the middle of change and uncertainty? What does the Bible have to say about what faithfulness looks like in times of transition? What does it mean to live in the middle of transitions in a distinctively Christian way? Well, last week, trying to answer those questions, we studied the call of Abraham. We saw how faith in God translated to obedience with eyes firmly fixed on God's promises. In other words, navigating change well requires faith working itself out in obedience while holding tightly to what God has actually promised to us. And ultimately, by holding tightly to Jesus, who all of God's promises find their yes and amen in. This week, we're going to look at another transition in Scripture to see how God shapes His people to be faithful in the middle of change and uncertainty. And this morning, our text, our main text, is going to be Deuteronomy 31, 1 through 6. But I do want to warn you a little bit, like I do when I do something like this, that we're going to be looking at multiple texts this morning to kind of wrap our minds around the Lord who promises to be with us even when everything around us is changing. And so we're going to be uh, focused in Deuteronomy 31, but we're going to be jumping around the scriptures. And if you brought your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy 31 now. But if you didn't bring your Bible, you can track with us on the screen or there are Bibles in the back. And if you're joining from home, I do want you to participate with us, to open up your Bibles with us, uh, to get ready to dive into God's Word together. So if you're able, would you please stand as we read from God's Word, Deuteronomy 31, 1 through 6. People of God, would you listen to God's Word this morning? Then Moses went out and spoke these words to all Israel. I am now 120 years old, and I am no longer able to lead you. The Lord has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. The Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you will take possession of their land. Joshua also will cross over ahead of you, as the Lord said. And the Lord will do to them what he did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites, whom he destroyed along with their land. The Lord will deliver them to you, and you must do to them all that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. This is God's word. You may be seated. What does 
faithfulness look like in times of transition? How, how do we navigate change wisely and in a distinctively Christian way? Well, this, this text helps us see patterns and principles within a time of transition that reflect God's heart for his people. But I want to be very clear. We are not Israel in this situation. None of your pastors are Moses or Joshua. And we're not about to enter some kind of promised land. This text points us to God's work among his people and towards his ultimate work in Jesus that therefore has meaningful implications for how we navigate change and transitions as Christians here and now. That's how we're approaching the text this morning. And here's how I think this text is doing that, summarized in in one sentence for us this morning. And so if you tune me out for the rest of the sermon, don't tune me out for this one sentence. In times of transition, God's presence preserves his people. In times of transition, God's presence preserves his people. In the middle of uncertainty, it is the certain us and enables us to navigate change faithfully and wisely and well. It is the, the presence of God that not only sustains us, but preserves us, keeps us, holds on to us as we step into an unknown future because we step into it with a God who knows everything. In times of transition, God's presence preserves his people. And we're going to see that played out through the lens of four different characters in God's story. The prophet, the warrior, the people, and the savior. The prophet Moses whose experience with God highlights God's crucial presence. The warrior Joshua, whose experience with God highlights God's committed presence. The people of God, Israel, whose experience with God describes what happens when we reject God's presence. And the Savior Jesus, who promises and makes good on the promise to restore God's presence, to be Emmanuel, God with us. In times of transition... God's presence preserves his people. And these four characters shows how he goes about doing that. And so I want to start with that first character, the prophet Moses, whose life and leadership express God's crucial presence when everything feels like it is in a constant state of change around us. Look at Deuteronomy 31.1. Then Moses went out and spoke these words to all Israel. I am now 120 years old and I am no longer able to lead you. The Lord has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. Moses is here at the end of his life. 120, and he's speaking to the people he has been leading for 40 years. 40 years of wandering through the wilderness on the way to the land that God had promised their father Abraham centuries ago. Years that became years of punishment because of their lack of faith. When God first showed them the land and they, they, they freaked out wondering if the God who just saved them from a superpower was able to make good on his promise to give them this land. Years that were also shaped by God's way of life as he provided food and water and his law to shape them as a people who would communicate his blessing not just to each other but to the whole world. After all, that's the promise that God made to Abraham. Not just you're going to get a bunch of things, but you're going to be a blessing to all nations. This is a time filled with joy and frustration and Moses led them through it. Or more accurately, God led them through Moses. And if you don't know, Moses is kind of a big deal in the Bible. He shows up in a lot of different places. Uh, But like we talked about last week with Abraham, also kind of a big deal in the Bible, the promises of God do not depend on God's people. The promises of God depend on God and God alone. They don't depend on incredible faith. They depend on his incredible faithfulness. And so just to make sure we have an accurate picture, I'm going to start this morning with Moses in a not-so-flattering story 
that explains why he says what he says in our text, but also helps us focus our attention on God as the one who is faithful. Because it is ultimately God who holds on to us in the middle of transition, not the comfort of the past, not the steadiness of the same leader, but the God who is faithful. You see, Moses in our text explains that he's no longer able to lead them. But that's not just because he's getting older and wants to retire, wants to kind of stop doing all of this. It's because of what he says next. He recalls for the people what God told him. Moses, you will not cross the Jordan, which is, uh, let me translate that for you. It says, you will not enter the promised land that you led my people to. Why? Well, if you want the answer for that, you've got to go all the way back to Numbers 20. So this is our first jump in Scripture. In Numbers 20, there's this scene that happens where God's people start to complain and oppose Moses and his brother Aaron, the two leaders of this community. And, and it's not the first time this has happened, and it certainly won't be the last time it's happened, but it's certainly a time that pushed Moses and Aaron over the edge in frustration. You see, what had happened was the people were thirsty. But it's not just about thirst. I mean, wandering around in the desert is going to do that to you. You can't really find water. But the reason that they're complaining and they're opposing this leadership is, is because this complaint was compounded by the difficulty of transition from Egypt to God's promised land. This, this wasn't just about water. This was about change. How much better things were back in Egypt, back when they were slaves, suffering under whips and back-breaking work. They were, they were so uncomfortable in the desert and so uncertain about what the future held, that they would rather go back than keep moving forward towards God's promises. How often do we do that when the Lord calls us to something and we're stuck in the in-between for a while? Well, Moses and Aaron, they go to God and they tell him everything that's happening. And God tells them, tells Moses, okay, here's how we're going to solve this. I want you to walk up to a rock and I want you to speak to it and I will provide water from that rock to satisfy my people. But God's plan of provision was not enough to settle the anger and frustration of Moses and Aaron. I mean, they had had it up to here with these ungrateful and whiny people. And what happens next is actually going to change the course of their lives. And so we pick up the story in Numbers 29 through 12, and it says us this scene. Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. Good, okay, obeying. And then he and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels. Must we bring you water out of this rock? All right, man, slow down. Moses raised his arm, verse 11, and struck the rock. Not spoke to the rock, struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. You will not bring this community into the land I give them. In a moment, not just of disobedience, but, but dishonor, Moses oversteps. He demonstrates his distrust of God by acting like he's the real leader of these people. And so God judges Moses and Aaron. He punishes them by taking away the honor of leading God's people into God's promise. And so at the end of his life, and at the border of the promised land, this prophet of God, this person that was leading them out, out of Egypt under the leadership of the Lord is not preparing to lead God's people into the land. He is preparing the people to be led by another. He is preparing them for this new challenge of trusting God to fulfill his promise and to demonstrate that trust and obedience. But he does not get to go in. 
Just a few chapters after this incident in Numbers 20, when God reminds Moses that he won't be leading his people into the land, Moses actually uh, demonstrates that he, he, doesn't, he, he understood what the Lord did. He doesn't have bitterness because he actually asked the Lord to appoint another, another leader so that these people won't be without a shepherd. And so God appoints Joshua in that text. And this is the context of Deuteronomy 31 as, as Moses addresses the people and encourages them, listen, I can't lead you. My time is up, but God has another leader for you. And yet, you need to remember that ultimately leadership is not changing hands in this situation. The leadership of God's people has always been in and will remain in the hands of the Lord. He is the one who goes before us. Before I keep going in Deuteronomy 31, though, I do want to go to one more place in Scripture. I want to flash back to another scene that clarifies what's happening in this context and explains what's behind the, the, the emphasis on the Lord working in this. And it's from Exodus 33. And it's this reality that leaders come and go, but God is the one who leads his people forever. And this is what Moses wants them to catch in this next season. And so Exodus 33, 12 through 16 recounts this scene between Moses and God that, that fundamentally shapes Moses' leadership, explains what he's about to say in Deuteronomy 31 through 3, but more than that, it gives us a glimpse into what should fundamentally shape the way we, we understand God, the way he works in the world. In this scene, Moses is having a conversation with God after the people had really screwed up. I mean, this is like the first time they really screwed up, but it was really bad. If you know your Bible, the golden calf incident just happens right before this. I mean, they just get out and they, they do something real bad. And Moses is frustrated. These people have brought judgment on themselves and he's, he, he's wondering in the middle of frustration and uncertainty how this is all going to work. In Exodus thirty three twelve, Moses says to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. Lord, if, you're, if you are pleased with me, teach me your way so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. I mean, how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Do you hear what God is promising Moses and his people in this moment? His presence will go with them. This isn't just some like, I'm going to chaperone you into hostile territory like Big Brother just to make sure you don't get beat up. This is the stuff of Genesis 3. When, God's, when, when the people that God created sinned, when humanity lost access, not just to this garden, but to the daily, regular, life-giving presence of God, and now for the first time in the text, since humanity lost this access, God promises that his presence will once again be with his people, with his image bearers. And Moses understands what's happening, right? Immediately, he wants to be clear. Listen, if your presence doesn't go, don't send us. Because it is your presence that, that explains us as your people. It is your presence that defines us. It is your presence that enables your promises, your presence that will preserve us as we follow you. Pay attention to this. TV. The presence of God is crucial for God's people at all times because this is what defines us. But in times of transition, when everything around us in flux, God's people must remember that we are defined by the presence of the one who never changes, the God who is constant, the one who keeps his promises, who promises to be with his people. 
That's always been the plan from the beginning. Deuteronomy 31 is just a snapshot of that plan in action. But God has always planned on restoring the access that humanity lost. Not just not to the Garden of Eden, but to presence. God's presence. God being with us. Why do you think Jesus' name is Emmanuel? God with us. I'm getting ahead of myself. This has always been the plan. And no leadership transition between Moses and Joshua or any other is big enough to threaten the reality that God plans to be present with his people. Not even a transition from the one who led them out of slavery and all the way to the border of the promised land. Moses is not perfect, but God is, and he will fulfill his promises. The prophet here is judged for his disobedience, not allowed to enter God's promise with God's people. But Moses assures the people that God will continue to be faithful to his promise. And he will be present with them. And it is God who will lead them into the land. That was the plan all along. This is what they should hold on to. This is what we need to hold on to as we navigate changes. Because in times of transition, it is God's presence that preserves his people. Not a particular leader, not a a, a particularly strong strategy or vision, but God's presence with God's people. It is his presence that keeps us and sustains us. It is his presence that steadies us. It is his presence that defines us because as Exodus 33 explains, it is his presence that distinguishes his people as his people. It's his presence that distinguished Israel and now as the body of Christ, it's his presence by his spirit that distinguishes us. Not as specialty insiders that are kind of get special access, but as pathways of blessing for everyone through the gospel. This has always been the plan. The story of the prophet Moses and his experience with God describes how crucial God's presence is to his people. But I want to go to the next story, the story of the warrior Joshua and his experience with God, because that will take God's crucial presence and characterize it not just as crucial, but as entirely committed to his people. And it's not because his people are so faithful. It's because he is. Look at Deuteronomy 31.3. Moses continues talking and he says, The Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you and you will take possession of their land. Joshua also will cross over ahead of you as the Lord said. Moses reiterates here for the people that the leader that God is putting over them, the successor that God has been developing and preparing for them. And he reminds them that Joshua will cross over ahead of them as God told them he would. Transfers of leadership are notoriously difficult. They can be super bumpy, and the Bible actually is filled with descriptions of these moments all over the text. It recounts these times, and every time what it does is it doesn't point to how amazing these guys did in their transition. It points to the faithfulness of God in the middle of those transitions, how God continued to be faithful to his people. It reiterates to God's people that it was not a surprise that it was going to be difficult, that they should not be worried, that God's not not trying to figure out, oh my God, what's going to happen with this? that he is working all things for his glory and the good of his people. And this transition between Moses and Joshua is no different. God said this is how it would happen. This is who I will lead through. But I want you to notice in the text what Moses says before he even mentions Joshua. The Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. And then he uses the same language to say that Joshua will cross over ahead of you. The same phrase. Essentially, Moses is clarifying for the people that Joshua is not their ultimate leader. God is. It is he who will be doing the work. It is he who is behind even the destruction of these nations. 
But I do want to stop here, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want to stop here and explain this, this moment in the text so we don't get stuck here. I hinted at it last week talking about Abraham. It's clear here in our text, God using his people to take over the land, so I'm going to explain it. And if we have more questions, you can talk to me about it later. I'm going to try really hard not to be caffeinated preacher right now and speak very quickly. When God tells his people to go in and destroy the people of Canaan, what we have to keep front and center when we're studying scripture is that the reason this is happening is not because the people of God are more, uh, somehow more deserving or more worthy or even morally righteous than the people of Canaan. If you track the story of God's people up until this point, they have a whole lot of sins racked up just on their way to the promised land. This is not about good guys versus bad guys. God's choice of his people is entirely a choice of grace. Undeserved and intended to be a source of blessing to others. It, 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 is, it is one thing to understand that God's people are special. It is quite another thing to understand that they are special because of who they are rather than the God that they serve. And so understanding that God has chosen his people for a, a, a pure reason of great, just grace, not because of anything that they have done, you also need to understand that there are consequences for sin. That God is holy and God is just. And, and so the other text that I want to, you don't have to run there because I'm just going to run right through it, is in Genesis 15, God explains to Abraham when he's talking about the promise that part of the reason that Abraham's not going to get the land quite yet is because the sin of its inhabitants has not reached its full measure. I'll translate that for you. It means that God won't actually take the land from them yet, not until in his timing and in his justice, the rebellion of these people gets to the level that calls for that kind of justice. But now that time has come. And God will punish them for their sins. And I want you to notice the subject of the verbs in verse 3. The Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations. God's people are not the ones that are in charge of punishment. God is. And let me fill out the picture even more. If you track throughout the scriptures, I'm going longer because I just want to do this. If you track throughout the scriptures... Whenever you go through the book of Joshua, whenever they start taking over places, there are actually people that are saved from destruction. The clearest example of this is Rahab. When Joshua comes to Jericho, sparing the life of Rahab, this Canaanite, this pagan who did not, was not part of God's people, it was not that Joshua was disobeying God's command, that, that God's people were going rogue and thus decided, you know, Rahab, she's pretty good. She could. It is God's grace and justice to react to repentance whenever he sees it, wherever he sees it, in whoever he sees it. Anyone who saw what God was doing and believed in him and repented, confessing him as the true God, would find life and salvation among his people. That's why there are so many examples in God's law. This is the part where, where in your Bible reading plan you get to and you're like, you get stuck and then you stop reading your Bible for the rest of the year. In these laws, if you were to, sorry, that was mean. That's me too. I do the same thing and I got to pick it back up in the New Testament. If you read through the laws, you actually start to get to a bunch of laws that are about foreigners, about strangers, about people that are, that are being included in God's people. Why is that? It's because God is not about building the kingdom of Israel. God is about building the kingdom of God. And the promise to the people of Israel was a promise that was made to bless all nations of the earth. These are the things we need to keep in mind when we get to passages that talk about the destruction of other people. God is just, 
God picked the people of grace. And that people, when, whenever there's any repentance that happens in, in all these nations, the Lord reacts and responds in grace and in mercy. There's more to say here, but I've already gone too long. So I'm going to back up and not get myself stuck in here. And I want to catch us up with where we were. Moses names Joshua before the people after explaining that God continues to lead his people, now through Joshua. And then something really interesting happens. A couple verses after our text, after Moses talks to the people, he actually talks to Joshua, but he wants to do it in front of everybody. Deuteronomy 31, 7 starts like this. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them. And you must divide it among them as their inheritance. He's encouraging Joshua by pointing him back to God's promises. This is, this is what God is going to do. is what he's calling you to do, how he's calling you to participate. Verse 8, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Joshua, in all of your clever military strategy and all of your experience in battle, what you need to remember is that the only thing that matters in all of this change between leadership and into this next stage for God's promise and God's, God's people is that God goes before you, that God will be with you, that God has committed his presence to his people, and that commitment is forever. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never leave nor forsake his people. Don't be afraid when everything feels like it's upside down. Don't be discouraged when things don't go right. Do not fear. Because God has committed his presence to his people. That's what defines his people. Not your leadership, Joshua. And TVC, this is what still defines his people today. If we're going to navigate transitions in life and all the changes that surround us, we, we need to God's presence, but we also need to know that God has committed his presence to his people. That we're not somehow going to lose it by accident. Misplace God's presence. God's promise is to be with his people. And he has fulfilled that promise in Emmanuel, God with us. The example of Moses shows us how crucial God's presence is. The example of Joshua shows us God's commitment to be present with his people. And in times of transition, it is the crucial and committed presence of God that preserves his people, holds on to us even in our faithlessness and rebellion and messing things up, even when things are scary and the future is uncertain, because the one who is present with his people is both faithful and the one who holds the future in his hands. But the story of transition from Moses to Joshua is not just one big uh, rah-rah speech from Moses. It actually starts to get a little concerning if you continue to track the story because Moses goes from telling the people to be, be strong and courageous, from telling Joshua to be strong and courageous, to trust the Lord who is going to lead you through Joshua, to now urging them to hold on to God's word so that they, that they don't forget and forsake God. And then, then all of a sudden you start saying, despite all this, you're still going to forsake God. You're still going to reject his presence. And yet even that won't frustrate God's plans. Look at this third character, the people of Israel. We'll start at Deuteronomy 31.3 again. The Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He's going to destroy these nations before you. And you will take possession of their land. Verse 5, the Lord will deliver them to you. And you must do to them all that I have commanded you. Verse 6, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified. Essentially, your job is to respond to God's actions by being obedient and by having faith in him. Your job is not to generate judgment, to make the call on who gets to live or die, to use your moral compass to determine who has a right to this land. This is not manifest destiny. This is God's justice. Not because of who you are, but because of who God is. Again, look at the verses. The Lord your God himself. 
will cross over. He will destroy these nations. The Lord will do to them what he did to Sion and Og. The Lord will deliver them. For your Lord, the Lord your God goes before you, goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. The job of God's people is to respond to God's actions, not the reverse. Not to act and then bless it as God's actions. In the same way that God will lead his people through Joshua, God has committed himself to the the world through Israel. It is he who goes first, he who enacts justice, he who will deliver them, and he who goes with his people. But don't get it twisted. This isn't about how great they are. This is about how gracious God is. Which is why Moses has to continue to encourage the people to obey. Why he makes it clear in verse 9 what is required of being part of God's people. Not just open your hands to receive the land, but be faithful to God. Verse 9, Moses wrote down this law and gave it to the Levitical priest, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And then Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, in the year for canceling debts, during the festival of tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. God command, if you're not familiar with some of the stuff he's talking about here, God commanded his people to do something every seven years that reflected his character and their identity as his people. He told them to cancel every single debt. Basically, free everyone from debt and celebrate together. Reenact the freedom that you have experienced from slavery. Be a people of restoration, of freedom, of grace. And every time you do that, Remind yourselves who you are and the blessings that are available for obedience by reading this law. And every time you do this, remind yourselves who you were and the curses that follow disobedience by reading this law. Verse 12 continues, assemble the people, men, women, and children, and the foreigners residing in your towns. Remember what I was talking about? It's not just an Israelite project. This is God's project of salvation for all nations. So he's including foreigners in this reminding exercise. Assemble the people so that they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. Their children who do not know this law must hear it and learn to fear fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Remember together, listen together, learn to fear God together and obey him carefully in this land that I am giving you. Just because you entered into the promise doesn't mean the work is done. Include your children who have not experienced what you have experienced. Moses says all of this. And then a few verses later, this happens. Verse 15, the Lord appeared at the tent in a pillar of cloud. And a cloud stood over the entrance to the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, you're going to rest with your ancestors, preparing him to die. But then he says this, these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land that they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. They're going to mess it up. They will not obey. Verse 17, In that day I will become angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them and they will be destroyed. Many disasters and calamities will come on them and in that day they will ask, Have not these disasters come on us because our God is not with us? And I will certainly hide my face in that day because of all their wickedness and turning to other gods. They're going to mess it all up. Moses, I'm going to do what I said I wouldn't do. I'm going to forsake them. I'm going to pull back my presence from them. 
I'm holy. And, and, and the way that they're act, they will act means that I cannot be there with them. And they're going to realize that their successes, their blessing is not inherent to being an Israelite. It is to being in my presence. They're going to be wicked. They're going to turn their back on me. And I'm going to turn my back on them in judgment. This is a reminder that this isn't about Israel being better or more deserving or worthier of God's love and relationship and presence than any other people on earth. It is God being gracious to all people on earth by being gracious and faithful to Israel. But he is calling them to obedience. And when they mess it up, they will also be judged and punished like all the other nations, that they were part of that judgment and punishment. When they reject God's presence, God will reject them. And so you might be going, okay, Eric, it seems like you said one thing earlier and now you're saying another thing. What do I do with that? Welcome to the Bible. Because we're going to track a story that, 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 that leaves something like this. How is this true? I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. I will forsake them. For the rest of, of this book, in Deuteronomy 32, God has Moses write a song that explains what will happen, all the things that will happen, so that when it happens, his people won't have an excuse. They'll say, you already told us before it happened that it would happen. And in that song, Moses recounts God's faithfulness to his people, and then he explains how they're going to rebel against God and reject God. And if you fast forward all the way through the book of Joshua and get to the next book, the book of Judges, in the very first few pages of that book, it actually happens. The text says in, in Judges 2 that a whole generation grew up who did not know God and what he had done for Israel. Apparently, God's people did not listen to Moses' instructions to both release debts every seven years and read the law and God's stories of faithfulness so that generation after generation would learn who God is and who they are because of him. Instead, they forgot. Somewhere in between, those stories were not being told. They were enjoying the blessings of God without being obedient to God, and they left their God. But God knew this would happen. But I'm going to fast, I'm going to fast forward. I'm going to reverse, go back. We're in Deuteronomy 31. I talked about the song in Deuteronomy 32, and that it actually happened in Judges. But if you go all the way back to Deuteronomy 30, God makes a promise before he says all the bad things, and he says, listen, I, there is hope. Because there is a day when I will not just ask them to change their behaviors, but be the one who changes their hearts so that they can be holy and faithful and live in relationship with me. So that my presence does not have to move away from sin, but that I can embrace them. That someday they will have new hearts. And even in God's anger and justice, the story of the Bible does not end in Israel's disobedience. God abandoning his project of salvation, meaning like, I tried, I did a lot of things. I suffered through a lot of things for them, and, and they forgot me. It does not end in God withdrawing his presence from his people forever. Because in times of transition, in times of change, in times of difficulty, it is God's presence that preserves his people. And his promise is that one day his presence will be permanent among his people. But in order for that to happen, the only way that that can happen is if God does something radical. If God does something that, that doesn't just like fix behavior, but completely changes hearts, that makes true obedience and true faithfulness a real possibility for his people. If God would restore his presence among his people. Moses shows how crucial it is 
Joshua shows how committed God is to being present. The people of Israel show that God is still holy and rejecting his presence actually has consequences and it's our default setting. But to end our time this morning, I'm going to step out of Deuteronomy 31 and jump all the way to the New Testament in John 1 to explain how God fulfills his promise to restore his presence. The Gospel of John begins with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The only solution possible to the rejection of God's presence, the only way that the crucial presence of God can stay committed to the people of God, that that scripture gives us all the way to the storyline of scripture is if God saves his people from themselves, from their wicked hearts. If God himself went before his people and paved the way to blessing, made a way back to him, not just for them, but for any who believe. And so the son of God took on flesh and lived among us. Emmanuel lived up to his name, not in judgment, but in grace and truth. Verses 9 through 13, John explains why this had to happen, because we desperately needed it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Not that, not gives light to just his people, but to everyone. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. They forgot him. And yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will. Nobody made this happen but God because they were born of God. The grace of God came through Jesus for all who believe. Not for the ones with the right pedigree. Not for just some people. Not for ones that we might consider the right people. But for those who were humble enough to receive him. To believe in him. And when they did that, they became children of God. Born by God's grace. Able to enjoy God's presence. Look at John 1, 16 through 18. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. The whole plan was full of grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. The Savior restores God's presence by making him known to us. By taking the grace that was given in the law and now giving even more grace, the grace that was promised, the grace that God promised would change hearts. That grace was given in Jesus who made God known and communicates God's presence to God's people. And he continues to do so for all who believe. Galatians 4 explains it like this, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that's what John 1 is talking about, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship, that we might become sons, children of God. Verse 6, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, Israel, Egypt, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. God sent Jesus to make us his children. And now as his children, God sent his spirit, not just to guide us and walk alongside us and just give us kind of good counsel, but into our very hearts. In other words, God has restored his presence among his people and is closer than he has ever been. He dwells in each and every one of us. 
And there are other passages in Scripture that explain he also dwells among us collectively as his people, which is another reason we need each other. This is the gospel, the good news, that by God's grace, all who believe in Jesus would be saved, would be restored to right relationship with God and with each other, that those God knew would forsake him, would be made into those who would be faithful to him. God will fulfill his promise to save and be his people by radically changing hearts, not just behavior. And this gospel good news affects not just some arbitrary spiritual reality out there, like I know I'm saved and I belong to Jesus and I just kind of know all these important things, but it changes everything we do in this life. And when I say, I mean, it changes the jobs we choose, it changes the, the, the people we marry, it changes the neighborhoods we move into, but it also affects how we navigate change and transition in this life how we navigate all the uncertainty that's happening in the world right now. In times of transition, it is God's presence that preserves his people, and God has committed his presence to his people, his crucial presence to his people, restored in Jesus to live within us and among us as his people. And that changes everything about the way we navigate uncertainty and the future and an unknown future. And, and I don't know what's going to happen. And this politician says this, and this leader says this, and now these scientists are saying this, we navigate these, these changes, a world that is constantly changing, a society that is constantly changing with laws and different politicians and, and now even a new senior pastor. Who knows what he's going to do with this church? I'm kidding. We navigate all of this change and transition with the God who never changes, with the God who promises to be with us. Because even when leaders change, we know that our king will never change. The kingdom will never change hands. Because we are children of the one and only true king. And that grounds us when everything else around us feels uncertain. That's how we navigate change in a distinctively Christian way. Holding on to the Jesus who has made us his. Who has made us each other's. Familia, I want you to trust that. In times of transition, God's presence in Jesus by his spirit among his people preserves his people. But I don't just want you to do that, like, hey, here's another task on your list. I want us to be praying that the Lord might do that and remind us to do that constantly. Would you pray with me? Faithful God, as we are about to sing in just a moment this morning, we declare that we believe everything that you say you are. We believe because we have seen your unchanging heart. And in the middle of so many things changing, in the good and in the most difficult moments, we believe and we will follow you. Not because we are so capable, but because you have changed us from the inside out. You have given us new hearts. In the good and the bad and all the way until the end, we believe. We trust you. We follow you. You've promised us your Holy Spirit and we know that you are with us. And I pray that you would remind us when we forget. Remind us when we are tempted to forsake you. Like the song says, when our hearts are prone to wander, remind us, and by the power of your Spirit, draw us back to you when we wander. It's your presence by your Spirit that makes us family in Christ, that identifies us, defines us as yours. Would you help us to believe that we are yours in the middle of all kinds of changes? I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.